Turn, if you will, to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. Let's read starting at uh, verse 13. And something about this section of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 13 through verse 20, is that it is an incredible presentation of who is Jesus Christ. Now, I have to confess for myself over the years, I've gone here in sort of a proof text fashion. Uh, we know this passage is here. We know it declares the deity of Christ. And I've, but I've really sort of subliminally always considered it as material for, I don't know, <clears throat> debate with those who disagree with the deity of Christ. And so as I've been sort of looking at this passage, sort of, you know, looking at it in detail to present it, it's just grown on me as one of the most amazing passages in the New Testament, a place where probably the person and work of Jesus Christ is not described any better. Other places may describe it in detail, but to have it all stated in one place, in one really succinct place, eight verses, is totally amazing. And so as we look at this passage, as we read this passage, Consider this, that Paul is giving you parallels. Some of the verses talk about the person of Jesus in his eternal essence. Some of the verses talk about the work of Jesus as the mediator of the new covenant. So you have a one verse will refer to his eternal glory, to his person, his essence. Another verse or two will refer to he's being a redeemer. And so it's Christ both in his person and relationship to the entire cosmos, a sort of metaphysical, ontological reality, and on the other hand, his relationship to the redemption of a fallen cosmos. And you'll see it sort of move back and forth. Our first verse, 13, who delivered us out of the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom, not just of his son, but the son of his love. Here's just one of those verses that represents Jesus in his eternal state as loved by the Father. Father and Son for all eternity, face to face, as the Gospel of John opens up. The Son of God's love. This is eternal being. Verse 14, in whom we have our redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. There is clearly, I mean, the clearest statement. Here is the eternal Son who has redeemed us. Verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him were all things created in the heavens and upon the earth, things visible, things invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities and powers, all things have been created through him and unto him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Again, the ontology of Christ, the preeminence of Christ over the entire created universe. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, for it was the good pleasure of the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things upon the earth or things in heaven. So however Paul presents it, whatever aspects he presents, there's this cosmic universality of Jesus. Just an amazing passage. So why don't we pray and ask for the Lord to be with us this morning as we consider in detail some more of this material. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne. And surely Jesus is the son of your love. He is the one of whom you spoke from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He's the one whom you spoke again from heaven as the radiance of his glory as your eternal son shone out from himself on a mountain. And you said, this is my beloved son, hear him. 
Lord, you love your son. Heavenly Father, you love your son. You have given everything to him. You have made all things through him. You have redeemed all things by him. Jesus Christ, in your heart, is the center of all things. This is the honor you have given him. This is the glory and dignity you have given him. We thank you for Revelation 4 and 5, a passage where this reality is just put on display in such magnificence, in such power, in such just gripping amazement. Lord, we pray that Jesus Christ would always be to us who he is to you. Lord, only your Holy Spirit can reveal these things. We can intellectually try to grasp them and should. But Lord, the essence of them must be in our hearts. We must not only know that Jesus is the son of your love, but we must love him ourselves. Love him as you love him. Heavenly Father, we read in John 17, it's the love wherewith you love him, that you love us. Lord, all this is just beyond comprehension beyond amazement, Lord, beyond joy, unspeakable and full of glory. So Lord, we just pray this morning as we look at some of these things, you would do what a pitiful preacher cannot do, what I could never do. I can gather my words together and try to put one word after the other and fill up a whole lot of words and try to say it as precise as I can. But Lord Jesus, you are the only one who can reveal yourself to sinners. And we're all sinners here. We're just redeemed. The difference between us and the world is that we have our sins forgiven because we've come to you. We're all sinners in ourselves. So Lord Jesus, we ask you to reveal yourself to us. Reveal your, just your glory, your greatness, your magnificence, at the same time, your love. Lord, your joy would be ours. Your peace would be ours. Your purposes would fill our minds and hearts. Lord, just pray again you would bless your word to your saints. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul has been doing everything he can to state with directness, with assertiveness, with precision, with clarity that Jesus is supreme. He is supreme whether you look at creation. He is supreme whether you look at redemption. He is the preeminent one in his church. So just again review, Colossae is in modern day Turkey, about 150 miles from the coast. If you want to go to the beach, yeah, takes you today, maybe an hour and a half, two hour drive, I guess. I don't know. I haven't done it, but uh, you can get there, I'm sure. It is in a mountain, mountainous valley area. You can see it there over on the right on the map, lower corner, Colossae. Again, I sort of show this picture because it just captures Colossae. Here are all the mountains that are around it. It's in a river valley, but mountains on every side. And again, that little mound in the front that you see in this picture, if you actually look at it from the top, is the old city of Colossae. You can see the roads. Colossae is about 120 miles from Ephesus itself as the crow flies. And that's important because Epaphras was a man of Colossae who went to Ephesus during Acts 19, heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, was saved, <clears throat> probably went to Paul's school at Tyrannus, became a minister of the gospel, a faithful minister of the gospel. Not every minister of the gospel is faithful. Just because someone has that title doesn't mean they're faithful. He was a faithful minister of Christ and he brought the gospel back to <clears throat> Colossae and some of the other cities. So he's the man who was responsible for these churches. And here are the three churches, sister churches, in, from three villages, Colossae, Laodicea, Hierapolis. They're in the Lycus River Valley with snowy mountains on all sides. And remember that these three little churches, they were house churches at this time, got three letters from God, and six people were personally named. Kind of important, kind of impressive. And something you might remember is that Colossae, it's about eight, ten miles from Laodicea, and here are the seven churches of the book of Revelation that are sort of all in proximity there, and so Colossae was part of it. They didn't get referred to in the book of Revelation because 
Jesus was referring to churches to represent specific situations and conditions a church can be in. But here are the seven real churches that the book of Revelation addresses. It's important to remember that Colossae was at the trailhead of trade routes coming from the east, where all the eastern mysticism was, coming from the east and heading to the coast of the Mediterranean, so it was a big trade route. And so Colossae is a small town on a big trade route and has lots of ideas passing through. There's Greek philosophy, Judaism, Eastern mysticism, all these ideas mixing and mingling around and many travelers coming through and propounding their opinions. Everybody loves to give their opinions, usually. And so Paul is writing this letter in a great way to warn the Colossians, to remind the Colossians that do not allow the world to delude you. Do not allow the world to come in and change the gospel. False teaching and false spiritualities come with fine, smooth, fair, persuasive speech. Always remember that. They always have plausible arguments. They always sound good at a high level and a conceptual level. That's how Darwinism's pawned off, by the way. It doesn't work in the actual details. But it works if you talk about it up here. It just looks like a nice idea that you can paint little pictures of and it just looks so good. And that's why it sells well. It sells well because it's readily conceptualized, not because it has any real scientific legitimacy. So don't let anybody delude you with plausible arguments. And always remember that the biggest danger to Christianity is not the raw denials of the atheist. It is syncretism. I'm not worried about a growing authoritarian state that's going to come against us with just raw persecution. I mean, it won't be fun, but it will be glorious if we're faithful to the Lord. And that's how you should look at it. It's not going to be fun. Dying, suffering, not fun. But it's that eternal weight of glory that we look for. And I hope all of you are praying daily as you watch our government become more and more like the Roman state. That you recognize that that's where we're heading sooner or later. But that's not the great danger to Christianity. The great danger is going to be something like critical race theory or social justice or neo-Marxism that comes in under the guise of being good of doing good things and accomplishing good things. It's going to come under that cover and it's going to, instead of having itself molded to the gospel, it's going to start molding the gospel to itself. And that is absolutely what is going on at breakneck speed in American Christianity. The syncretizing of the gospel with the latest versions of social justice. Counterfeit ideas trying to reshape and reimagine the gospel, blending the gospel with false and worldly concepts, which ultimately do nothing but distort any road. They do not enable the gospel. Do not be deceived. Critical race theory is not a lens through which we can evaluate the world in some better way than the Bible. It is a worldly lens, in the end, a demonic lens. And always remember that. Paul wrote this very letter to these people, four chapters, telling these people, do not let your faith and your, the truth of the gospel be eroded by worldly incursions that try to reshape the gospel. Don't do it. False religions and false spiritualities come in many angles and flavors. There's the philosophy. There's empty deception. There's the tradition of men. There's elementary principles of the world. We've talked about some of those things. At Colossae, you had philosophy. And you had Eastern mysticism. This sounds oh so spiritual. Like the fog, you try to grasp it. Like aum, I'm going to go aum something. It's just mysticism. There's no real substance to it. Asceticism that thinks by doing religious things with the body, denying the body, doing these kinds of practices, doing your prayer beads, etc., that somehow, you know, that's going to get you somewhere with God. And then, of course, Judaism that confuses the old covenant with the new. A lot of that going around even in American Christianity. Dispensationalism, one of the great confusers of that. 
This was going on at Colossae. And name, make no mistake, it's happening to us today. The same philosophies are floating around. There's just more of them than there used to be 2,000 years ago. More details, more variations, more variants. There's mysticism today flooding America. Judaism is all around us still trying to get Christians to go into the Old Testament and interpret the Old Testament on its own terms instead of through the lens of the New Testament. There's asceticism. I was in it. I got saved when I was doing, getting my yin and yang sorted out through rice diets. That's when the Lord saved me. I've been through the diet trip. I've been through the organic food world. You wouldn't think it now. Today there's statism, very much like the Roman state. The state is God. The state is authoritative. That is what we are and will be, and it's growing. We are up against it. Don't dismiss it. Don't think it's passing fad. People do not relinquish power. And the current authoritarian government that is growing will not relinquish its power. You can just see it and watch it. Even the hard facts of science will not dislodge its grip onto power. And then there's scientism. Scientism which states that the only reality is empirical reality. The only reality is what you can see and touch and measure. There is no reality beyond that. And I was watching an interview with some intelligent design scientists by the Hoover Institute. It was really a good interview. But some of these men who are just first-rate scientists decrying the reality that 20 years ago they saw the English departments and they saw the history departments succumb to critical race theory, succumb to, you know, the diversity, equity, and inclusion. I think they should change the order to diversity, inclusion, and equity, die, but whatever. Diversity, equity, inclusion, they succumb to all that. And they thought, oh, surely it will never come to us because we deal with empirical facts. But lo and behold, science today, science departments themselves have succumbed to political manipulation. Even science is subject now to what is the accepted norm. I've been listening to Stephen Meyer. I know he's an old earther. That's fine. He, he's great at slaughtering Darwinism on Darwinism's own terms. I mean, he just eviscerates it, just page after page. I've been listening to it. And he's talking about a scientist from China who in the 1980s discovered this place, and this is really important to Darwinism, where there's this Cambrian and Precambrian rock, so they say, and this found scads of fossils in it better than any find to date, better than the Burgess find. And this Chinese scientist looked at all the material and he basically said, you know, this dooms Darwinism because this is exactly the opposite of what Darwinism says should be. So he came to America and he came to a conference because he had all these specimens and he had all these new findings. It's just totally amazing what this, what this guy discovered. He even was being able to look into fossilized cells and the nucleuses of fossilized cells. It's crazy. So he's at the conference and he's delivering his finds. And he says, yes, this you know, causes a big problem for Darwinism because this is exactly the opposite of what Darwinism said should be happening in the fossil record. And it's clear, you can't dispute this. If you're a Darwinist and you're relying on these fossil records, well, this is telling you the opposite. So someone in the audience finally put the question to him and he said, Mr. Yu, he's Chinese. He said, you know, you, you come from China where there's you know, a lot of suppression of personal ideas and aren't you a little afraid that you know, challenging Darwinism might get you in trouble back home? And as Stephen Meyer puts the story, he says in just this wry smile, the Chinaman, Mr. Yu, just looked and said, you know, in China, we're not allowed to criticize the government, but we can criticize Darwin. But in America, 
You can criticize Dar the government, but you're not allowed to criticize Darwin. And that is what has happened to science in America. What you would think would be this empirical, okay, we're gonna live by evidence. The evidence is always bent and is always selective based on preconceived ideas. So we have scientism in our country. Scientism coming at us with the pseudo-authority that they can do no wrong until, of course, they revise their theories next week because of some new evidence they find. Now, at Colossae, there was this philosophy, and I just sort of put it up here, and it might be a little wearying to you, but just try to grasp it because it's the basis of a lot that goes on in our world today. People wouldn't come up with this specifically, but it is influencing a lot of things. The Greeks said that reality, existence and reality, was on three layers, three levels. There's the top level, the beyond being. You can't go there, you can't know that, you can't reach that. It's out of reach, out of touch of the human mind and experience. Then there's the world of the mind and maybe the heart. And they call this the logos, and they call this wisdom. This is where you have your thought and your thinking, and this is where your true value is, is here. And then there's this world of the physical. They called it non-being because they essentially regarded it as irrelevant at best, evil at worst. And they went around every day and thought like this. This is how they evaluated the world. This is how they filtered all of their thinking. There's this unknowable world up here that you can never know. There's the logos, the soul, the wisdom, which you hope you have a lot of. The philosophers had tons of it, supposedly. And then there's this physical world including the body. And poor old Greek philosophy, <laughs> it was subject to religious syncretism. So religious syncretism came in and grabbed Platonism and started turning it into a religious variant to where there's this unknown God up here, and in the middle we have this enlightenment that we can have and our great pursuit in, quote, religious exercise is to find the unknown, to be enlightened from that world. And the body, well, you know, it's irrelevant, so I'll either be at Colossae and dabble in asceticism, or I'll be at Corinth and dabble in indulgence. And so what you think about the world, how you see the world, and how it's put together in your mind, and you have to have one, everybody's a philosopher, everybody isn't articulate in their philosophy, or consistent in their philosophy, but everybody has opinions about what makes the world tick. And this was their view of the world. And so the Gnostics were starting to really articulate this version of things, and there was a growing Gnosticism at Colossae, in which there's this good deity up here, and there's this evil world down here, and well, the good deity can't really personally touch the evil world, so there has to be all these series of intermediaries between the good deity and the, the bad world. And Jesus is one of those intermediaries. Now when you start thinking about this, what do Jehovah's Witnesses say? Jesus is not the eternal God, but he's an intermediary. He's at the top of the heap. But he's still an intermediary. Mormons do the same thing with all their discussions about angels. There's, there's this world of intermediaries that they impose and interpose. Islam works on this schedule, doesn't it? Jesus is what in Islam? He's another prophet, a great prophet, but he's just another intermediary between God and the world. And of course, Buddhism operates directly on this, as do other things. So it's important when you're dealing with false religions to understand that you're going to win people over, not by knowing and understanding all the details of every religion. If you want to do that, fine. I'm doing it with science. It's my pick, personally. But if you want to do that, fine. But in the end, you're going to be bringing people to come to Christ so understand generally what they believe and how the gospel answers it. And that's exactly what's going on here at Colossae. Paul is answering 
all of the inroads of the heresies of Eastern mysticism and Greek philosophy and Judaism, and he's answering them with a presentation of the gospel that shows how Christ is greater, bigger than all these things. So he warns the people, see to it that no one takes you captive. The design is to distort and reshape your thinking and your concepts of the gospel, of the world, of God, of reality. False spiritualities bring spiritual and intellectual bondage, not enlightenment. People caught in religious cults are clearly in chains and bondage. Have you ever tried to give someone out of sort of a cultist situation? They're just dedicated in their belief to something, and no matter what you say, no matter what you show them in the Bible, they can't. You watch them, they can't, because they have now adhered to a cult, and that becomes their authority instead of the Word of God. And you become captive. Let no one take you captive. And remember, all of these aberrations, all of these deceptions, all of these things happening today in America, they come from the forces of darkness, the authoritarians, government, forces of darkness. Gwen and I, a couple weeks ago, were looking at Revelation chapter 18, and you just read those first verses, and I'd really never noticed before how those verses describe Babylon, the world system. And in the book of Revelation, the world system is where all the money happens. It's economics, okay? And Babylon operates on this plane of economics and always has. It offers people fancy stuff, shiny stuff, in order to distract you from the true and living God. It'll buy you off with shiny stuff to keep you from the living God. It just will do that. And as the world has gone along for thousands of years... That's what it's been doing. Babylon has been doing its thing. The great harlot trying to allure people to its wares, her wares, instead of the true and living God. But in the last days, toward the end of the age, this Babylon, this economic system, will become inhabited by very sinister and dark forces. Read those first four verses. Revelation 18. And Babylon will become the tool of Antichrist to go out and bring the whole world together in one unified group of human beings who are aligned against God. Interesting how corporations are now rising above state entities to control world economics. Right there. Book of Revelation. Chapter 1 through 18. Read the end of 17 to see what, how Satan's manipulating that. So behind all this darkness, behind all these lies and deceptions, is the prince of darkness and the kingdom of darkness. And the aim of this kingdom of darkness is not anti-God, So it's okay if you're going to be a Buddhist. It's okay if you're going to be a Hindu. It's okay if you're going to be a Mormon. It's okay if you're going to be a liberal Christian. Air quotes. But it's not okay if you believe Colossians chapter 1, 13 through 20, that Jesus Christ is the singular, the exclusive being who runs and owns the universe. And as it says in Philippians, to him every knee will one day bow. That is what they do not want to hear. That is what they will put people to death for. That is why they will take your stuff, thinking that by taking your stuff, they can control you. Because it works with a lot of people. A lot of people go along with the authoritarianism because they don't want to get canceled. They don't agree with the authoritarianism, but they go along with it because... Honestly, they're just going to go out and get slaughtered and nothing will change. I kind of see their point. But for a Christian, it's not about, okay, how are you going to do in this world? It's about eternity. It's about who owns this world. It's about who is God. Is it the state or is it Jesus? 
And so Colossians chapter 1, 13 through 20, must be in the very bones and fiber of who we are. Because that is our witness. That is our testimony. And so the aim of all these false teachings is to draw Christianity and Christians away from the centrality of Jesus Christ. And my brothers and sisters, like the Colossians, Paul said, you see to it that it doesn't happen to you. This is your responsibility. This is your accountability before the living God. Truth is not a matter of personal opinion. It's a matter of divine revelation. I don't get to open the Bible and say, I think it says this and go about my merry way. There's a day of judgment in which I think it says this is going to be brought to account. Why do you think it says that? Do your knees knock together when you say, I think it says that? Or do you glibly just say, oh, that's my opinion. And I have a right to my opinion. You'll have a right to your opinion all the way up to the day of judgment. Then you got no rights to no opinions. There is only one opinion that's going to stand. And Jesus said, my words will judge you in that day. My words, the words that you're reading in this book, the words that you're taking and manipulating perhaps, and coming up with your own opinion on those words in their right order, in their right statement, in their right clarity, will be your judge in the day of the Lord. Your opinion matters not a wink. It's not what you think. It's what God says. Truth is not a matter of personal preference. I like this truth over that one. I don't like this one, well, because it's, you know, goes against the grain of my humanistic version of the world. It's not a matter of personal preference. It's a matter of responsible obligation before the Lord. And one day, truth will be everything. See to it that no one takes you captive. So is it Colossians 2, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him? We focused on this. There's a true gospel. They received that true gospel from Epaphras. And in the face of these myriad and diverse aberrations, what they receive from Epaphras, they should continue in and reject all of the false gospels that are floating around. And there's plenty of them today. So it's not so much about personal faith. In reception of Christ, that's real. We have to have personal faith and we have to embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. We can call that receiving Jesus if we want. That's fine. But it's receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul is not concerned so much about that personal thing. He's concerned about the faith, just as you were taught. Receiving what is true about Christ and continuing in what is true about Christ it's the true Christ versus the falsehoods and aberrations that's here. And clarity and purity and simplicity of the truth is vital to vibrant Christianity. Truth matters. Truth matters to your everyday life. Truth will arrange your thinking. We'll see that in a bit. How wrong arrangements cause such problems for people. Truth is vital. We need to be rooted, built up, established. And that will lead to thanksgiving. That's why we teach here. That's why we are clear here about the Bible. That's why we let the Bible speak and reject all the philosophies of men. We accept no other authority except what is between Genesis 1 and Revelation 22. We accept no other authority. Now we're certainly glad to listen to everybody's perspectives. I got 10,000 books in my library. I'm glad to have them. I'm buying more. But they have zero authority. Zero. Clarity, purity, simplicity of the truth. Jesus Christ is the center of this. The, the clarity and purity of the truth in its simplicity will bring you to Jesus Christ, the true Christ. True Christians have their heart, their mind, their life centered in Jesus Truth is not a set of abstract ideas. It embodies and points to a glorious living person.
person. Do you know that person? Doctrine is great, but it won't save you. The person that that doctrine describes, he will save you. Be clear about doctrine, but be even more clear that Jesus is the Savior, not systematic theology. It's Christ Jesus, the Lord. We walk in him. We're built up in him. He's the center. And we've looked at Colossians 1, 15 through 17. In the face of all these attempts to blend the gospel with worldly philosophies, Paul asserts the universal centrality and supremacy of Christ over all creation. He presents what some have called the cosmic Christ as the foundational metaphysic of the universe. Everybody's looking for, you know, all the quantum laws and particles and everything like that. But they're not looking for Jesus. Some of you could care less about quantum, but you got Jesus. Guess who's going to be in eternity? He's the image of the invisible God. This is the first thing he wants us to know in his essential being. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the eternal son of God's love. Two verses before. He always was and always is and always will be the image of God. He's the very expression of the being and character of God. He does not merely reflect the being of God. He radiates these things. Difference between the sun and the moon. The moon reflects. The sun radiates. Jesus radiates the image of God. He's the firstborn of all creation. Again, this word firstborn can mean sequence, born first, or it can mean primacy. Firstborn had rights and privileges and inheritance. And a context of the usage is always important, and here the context clearly points to priority, supremacy, and primacy. Jesus has a relationship to all created reality. He's the prototokos, the firstborn. He is unique and solitary in this place. He's the prototokos, the firstborn, because by him all things were created. This is so not because he was created first, rather it's because he is the creator. That is the point of the passage. Jesus is the firstborn, not because he was created first, but because he creates all things. That certainly excludes himself. All creation, all things created before all things, all things hold together. Paul is presenting Jesus Christ with specific reference to creation. Not about redemption, that comes to today's message, but rather the metaphysic of the universe. We need to be clear about this. We need to be clear about creation, existence, and reality, and Jesus, before we start thinking or talking about redemption. Now, in case there's a question, Paul enumerates everything, heavens, earth, visible, invisible, earthly thrones of dominions, heavenly thrones of dominions. He itemizes things, just in case we missed what all means. All things were and are created by Jesus, and all things have ultimate reference through him. They've been created through him, and they have been created for him. Why do dogs and cats exist? Ultimately for Jesus Christ. Why do the squirrels in my front yard that dig up Gwyn's plants exist? Ultimately for Jesus Christ. Why do I secretly feed them? Because they're cute little squirrels. It's ultimately for Jesus Christ. So when I look at God's creation and I pray, and you all should pray this, say, Lord, I want to see your glory in your creation. Just show me your glory in your creation. All of a sudden you become a, a botanist. You become looking at birds. You start looking at everything. You look at the grass and you go, man, cutting the grass. I got to be careful. I can't make a blade of grass. I don't want to hurt it. You can get a little weird, yeah, but you start seeing the glory in God's creation. And you start thinking, yeah, God created all this so I can step on the soft grass. It'll grow back. I have to think these things through, you see. Yeah, the mind of Steve. Everything's been created for Jesus. And he's before all things. He's not some spiritual intermediary. He's the creator and Lord of all things. He's the one, the true significance, the prototokos, the firstborn of all things. And in him all things hold together. Jesus Christ holds the universe together. He sustains the universe, whether it's physical parts of it, the rational parts of it, 
or the spiritual parts of it, Jesus is giving cohesion, meaning, order to all things. And if that's not enough, Paul now transitions to Christ being the head of the church. You think, see, that's a long introduction. Well, I just wanted to be thorough. I wanted to be clear. This passage is so important. I want us to be gripped by this passage. Of course, we won't be finishing these verses today, but we'll get started. Paul then transitions from Christ's place in creation to his place in human redemption. And the first thing he says is he is also the head of the body. Paul spent three verses on Christ's place in the current creation, the cosmic Christ, and he now spends three verses on Christ's place as the head and redeemer of the new creation. He's not just a redeemer, save me from my sins. The first thing Paul says isn't that, well, he saved us by his blood. I mean, he's already referred to that several times above. But as he says, now I'm going to lay out for you who is Jesus Christ as far as redemption and salvation is concerned. Understand that this redemption and salvation isn't just about you getting saved from sin. It's about a body of Christ that is a new humanity for a new creation. He wants you to understand the dimensions of redemption. They are not simply as big as your sins being forgiven. It is way bigger than that. Jesus just didn't save you from your sins so you can go to heaven and won't be judged. He saved you with a reason and a purpose. To give you a significance beyond all significance you could ever imagine. There is no good sci-fi movie, if there are any anymore, that can give you the significance of a human being that even comes close to this. And all the attempts of Hollywood, and there's a lot of money involved, and a lot of other things involved, and all their attempts to try to come up with a better version of the human race than the one that's here, they all flop and fail, don't they? You don't get better humans. You might get some flawed superhumans. But what are they super at? Quantum mechanics. Not faith, hope, and love. What Paul presents here is a new humanity, a new human race. And the first focus about this new humanity is Christ's relationship to the redeemed of that new humanity. He begins with this absolute statement, Jesus is also, not only is he the creator, not, as a, not only the prototokos of all creation, he is also the head of the body, the church. The head of the body. Now, if all you had was the book of Colossians, you would be scratching your head right now going, what in the world does he mean by body? We'll get to that in a minute. But what does he mean by head? He's the head of the body. Someone would think, well, that's kind of pretty obvious, you know. The head is on the top. The head directs everything. Pretty clear when you look at head, body. But the word you hear used head can also not only mean a place of authority and responsibility and running the show, but can also mean the sense of source or origin. I've used the term. Of all those trade routes, Colossae is the trailhead. It's kind of the place where everybody meanders through the mountains and then hits Colossae, and now they're going to spread out everywhere. It's the trailhead. We talk about a riverhead. Where does the Mississippi River begin? So we're not so much thinking about authority as we are about origin, and that's true of this Greek word. It can have that meaning. But the meaning of origin never negates the concept of primacy and authority. And context, like always, is the king. It's how you use a word, not what you dictionarily propound. You see, I had a cat. His name was Alex. And Alex was just a cool cat. What do I mean? Well, you know what I mean, right? He always operated at what, 20 degrees below zero? Is that what I mean? No. 
Now, the dictionary meaning of cool is what? Cool temperature. But the metaphorical use, using it as a simile, well, I have a totally different meaning. Cool Alex means nothing compared to a cool refrigerator. Unless your refrigerator is really an extravagant one, then it's cool and cool. But I don't have that problem. And so the use of a word determines on context. And when it says Jesus is the head of the body, you just can't go to the Greek dictionary and look it up. A lot of people, they get excited about the Greek. They study their Bible while they get excited about the Greek. I know I did. And you start going to all these lexicons that make it easy for you to look up Greek words. But you have no idea that you can shoot yourself in the head doing that. If that's where you stay, then be careful. If you want to move on into the true significance of the Greek language and how language works, fine. But if you're just going to stick there with, well, I looked it up in Strong's Concordance, and here's what it means, uh, be careful. But Jesus is the head of the body. Now, this term head is debated because the feminist movement has done everything it can to erase hierarchy in marriage. Right? Everybody know what hierarchy is? Hierarchy means this is here and this is here. There's a rank, there's an order. Someone is above somebody else in some kind of measure. And in marriage, it's clear in Ephesians that the husband is the head of the wife. Here's the wife, here's the husband, the husband's head, the wife's not. Feminists can't stand that version of marriage. And so they have to try to make the Bible say something else because they want to be Christians, but they don't want to be Christians. And so what they do is they start playing with the term head. Well, it really means source. It really means origin. It doesn't mean authoritatively over something. And they write all kind of books, do all kind of dissertations and all kind of silly dialogues. But when you go back to the Ephesians, it says... <clears throat> As the church is subject to Christ, let the wives be subjection, subjection to their husbands, their head, accordingly. It's about subjection, not about origin. Context is king. Same with 1 Corinthians 11. There's that order of God, Christ, man, woman. Ugh, the feminists, I mean, you want to throw acid in their face, throw that verse at them. Not that I want to throw ass in anybody's face, but you'll get the same effect. They can't stand it. They sizzle at that verse. So what do they do? Well, I want to be a Christian, but not a Christian, so I'm going to go and try to manipulate the Bible on this term, head. It really means source. And they become very creative, by the way, and they can, I don't know, have persuasive speech. And some foolish people buy into their speech. They don't go to the context. The context clearly says there's a headship of God over Christ. Jesus says, I always do the Father, the things that please my Father. I don't speak a word without my Father. It's not about origin. It's about authority. No elaborate twists and turns can change what this word means. The context there in those passages clearly that of primacy and authority, not origin. But what does head mean here in our context? Does it mean authority or does it mean source? Well, great thing for our context is it means both. So you get the best of both worlds. That's not what it means in 1 Corinthians 11. That's not what it means in Ephesians 5. But the context here draws in both of those aspects of Christ being the head of the church. Jesus is the singular and primary authority over his body, which is the church, and Jesus is the exclusive foundation and originator and source of his body, which is the church. We see this from the passage. He's the head of the church and he's the beginning. Jesus is the singular primary authority over his church, because he's the beginning. Now we would think, well, that means, you know, the origin was like, well, this word arche, we'll look at it in a minute, but simply arche means first in regard of time and authority. So rulers were called arches. 
And so was the beginning of a trailhead. That would be called an arcade of the trail. So this arcade has this double meaning. We're almost like in the Gospel of John here. It is rich, but at least it has this sense as the beginning. He's the first in time, and he's also the first in authority and honor and dignity. He's the beginning. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. We get this word again, prototokos, the firstborn from the dead. This firstborn, again, can have this sense of temporal significance in time, first in time, or it can mean first with regard to priority, honor, dignity, and inheritance. So Christ is the head of the body, at least because he has this place of authority and primacy, of honor and inheritance. He is the firstborn. He is the archaic of his church. And that's why Paul says he is these things, so he has the first place in everything. Isn't it wonderful how Paul solves all these word debates? If you don't know what he means, kind of read a little further. Sometimes you have to read elsewhere. Read a little further and Paul will tell you, here's what I mean by this word. He has the first place in everything. But he's not only the exclusive authority, he is the exclusive foundation, originator, and source of his body, the church. And it's because, first of all, because of who he is. He is the source of the church's life because all the fullness dwells in him. To remind you of a a passage, is there a parallel passage in one of the letters that these Colossians had in hand? They can say, well, what did Paul mean by this word head, body? What's he talking about? Oh, wait a minute. We got this other letter. Later on, they're going to call it Ephesians. And it fully explains what these terms mean. And we'll be looking at it in a minute. But Jesus is the source of the church's life. Ephesians 1.3. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. He's the head of the church because he's the source of every spiritual blessing. We'll read later in Colossians, in him all the fullness dwell and in him we're made full. Chapter 2, 9 and 10. He's the head of the body because he's the firstborn from the dead. He's the exclusive foundation, originator, and source of his body, the church, because of what he accomplished in his resurrection. Jesus has primacy because he was the one who went into the grave. He is the one who reconciled all things through the blood of his cross. He is the one who stayed in that grave over the space of three days. He is the one who in power rose from that grave. And he just didn't do it for himself. He needed to do none of this for himself. He did it all for his body, the church. He's also the foundation, originator, and source of his body, the church, because he has accomplished reconciliation. He has reconciled all things through the blood of his cross. Paul is clear about where Jesus gets this headship. It's not just something he has because of who he is or because the Father has given it to him. He has it because he earned it. Jesus has this headship in part because he earned it. Paul tells the elders in Acts chapter 20, feed the church of the Lord which he purchased with his own blood. He bought us with his blood. It cost him. We cost Jesus Christ everything. And he paid it all. He said, Steve owes this. Jesus said, I'll pay it. Logan owes this. Jesus said, I'll pay it. I'll buy it. If that's the price, I'll pay it. He accomplished something through the blood of his cross. What does Paul mean by body? What occurs in the book of Colossians five times, Ephesians seven times, Romans two times, and 1 Corinthians eight times referencing the body of Christ. 
And the primary concept of that is organic cohesion and relationship, but we're out of time. So we're going to leave that there. But Christ is the head of this body. Now in your minds and hearts, is there anything in your thinking that challenges the headship of Jesus Christ over his church? Anything. Is there anything that you can think of that challenges the headship of Christ? Authoritarian governments do, for sure, but we're talking about in the body. What about cult leaders? You say you got to come to them to come to Jesus, which is fundamentally what a cult leader will say. A cult leader will say, I am going to give you reason and, person and, and acceptance and recognition. Come be part of my group and I will affirm you. Come be part of my group and I'll help you get to heaven. Now, sometimes this is overt and sometimes it's very subtle. The cults basically put a human being between you and God. Whatever you call that human being, whatever religious category you put them in, no matter how long that tradition has been around. There are many Christians in Roman Catholicism. There have been many Christians throughout the centuries for a long time, a period of almost a thousand years. If you were going to be a Christian, that's all you had. Fundamentally, was Roman Catholicism. There are a few crazy Baptists. At least that's how they were labeled. But that's what you had. And yet Roman Catholicism at every point replaces Jesus Christ as either the prophet or priest or king in his church replaces it with a human being or, or ordinance. Jesus is the only head of his body. He has not delegated that headship to any human being at any time in history. He did not delegate that headship to Paul. He did not delegate that headship to Peter. If someone says he delegated that headship to Peter, that is false doctrine par excellence. Or the, what's the difference of par excellence? Par, par battleance. Anything that challenges the headship of Christ in his body is false teaching to the max. Our authority is this book, and this book says he's the head of the body, the only head of the body. And that was the point of the Reformation. That was the battle in that day. It's not our battle today, at least not in the big picture. Our battle is social justice right now. Back then, the battle was Roman Catholicism. It was about authority for truth, Roman Catholicism said the Bible plus. It was about who's the head of the church. Roman Catholicism said the Pope. Jesus plus the Pope. He's the vicar of Christ on earth. Nowhere does the Bible ever present that language of any kind, in any shape, in any form. Matthew 16 does not justify it for a second. Things challenge the headship of Christ, and whatever they do, you need to come down on the right side. Not the right side of history, the right side of Christianity, the right side of the Bible. Jesus alone is the head of his church, the head of the body. And Lord willing, next time there's an opportunity, we'll be looking at what the body means in this book of Colossians. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your throne. and Lord, again, we thank you for your word and just pray again you would Preserve us in every way. Preserve us in the love for Christ and recognition of him that he is the only one between you and us. No human being can take that place because no human being is qualified or capable. Only Jesus was the perfect lamb. Only Jesus had the blood of an innocent victim. Only Jesus is at your right hand ruling and reigning. Only Jesus is our head of this little body of believers. Lord, preserve us in that always. Keep us in that always. 
we think that we're so clear about this or that truth that you know we're not going to get carried away, but all you got to do is withdraw your hand and we'll be out there with the best of them believing the craziest things. So Lord, just pray you'd preserve us in truth, preserve us in faith. With this truth, we will embrace with faith. We will mix it with faith. And then, Lord, we will have your love. The son of your love is the one who gives love. Lord, we would have that among ourselves. Love for you, to love God first, to really love you. Lord God, to love you as our Father. Lord Jesus, to love you as our King and Savior. Let that just be full and rich in our souls and grip us in every way. We ask all these things in the name of the head of the body of Christ, the Savior of the world, Jesus. Amen.